there's a billboard somewhere between like Fargo and Alexandria. It's on the highway. I drive by it sometimes. And it was by a health system. And it said like, all that matters is a healthy baby. And I get so mad (laughs) because for a while, that was my perception. That was my belief. And after looking at what felt like the wreckage of my brain, body, and soul in the year after my daughter was born, you know, it, it just really hit home that there are so many things involved and that birthing people should not be a byproduct of the system of, of birth and labor. We've journeyed with Elizabeth through her life before conception, her pregnancy, and her experience giving birth to Annie. Now it's time to tackle the days and weeks that come after. For a full year after her daughter was born, Elizabeth struggled. She wasn't herself. This episode will take a hard look at the postpartum period when developing those early connections with a baby is crucial. What do mothers need? What did Elizabeth need? And who could have given it? This is The Earliest, a Zero to Three podcast. I'm your host, Ernestine Benedict. Zero to Three is the nation's leading nonprofit, ensuring all babies and toddlers have a strong start in life. Join me as we explore mental health and well-being in the earliest years of life, the years that matter most. This season, we focus on infant and early childhood mental health. Welcome back. For any new listeners, now is a good time to start at the beginning with episode one. You'll get the most out of this series if you listen in order. In the movies, the scene when a baby comes home from the hospital is a joyous one. Everyone's glowing and the new baby is as happy as a clam. But the baby's almost a prop, something to highlight the parents' joy. Kathy, the director of IECMH Strategy at Zero to Three, thinks that narrative is wrong. When you think of infants and young children, you think of these adorable babies that are peaceful and and carefree. And when you think of the term mental health, most thought often goes to mental illness. And that conjures up a different set of images. And so those don't always connect. But when we think about infant and early childhood mental health, that's the real recognition. The babies come into this world with a capacity to form attachments and with, with a capacity to have a rich emotional life. Babies have feelings and their feelings can be very strong, especially as you get into toddlerhood and early childhood. For a moment, Elizabeth had that Hollywood high as she got ready to go home from the hospital. But shortly after, her narrative took a turn. You know, so I I remember being at the hospital uh, the day we got to go home and I was so excited because Anybody who stayed in the hospital knows, you know, we love our nurses, we love our care providers, but you're getting woken up at all hours. It's not the most home-like environment. Even if you bring your own pillows, twinkle lights, it's just not quite the same as being at home. So I remember getting my staples removed, which I didn't realize was like a thing. They were like, we're going to take your staples out. And I was like, that must be some kind of medical jargon. And she came in with like a giant clamp thing and, uh, Unclamp me. And also, thank goodness for that nurse who was also one of the lactation consultants. I was in such a tizzy over breastfeeding. It was something that was so important to me uh, that I really cared about. I was in a baby-friendly hospital, which was something that I 
chose purposefully because I was like, I want to breastfeed. I want to do this. And I regretted that decision (laughs) immediately. And it was not the fault of the hospital. I had not anticipated how I would feel coming out. My mental health was just shattered. I had a really difficult time breastfeeding. You know, with a C-section, there was a delay in milk coming down. I was like, and now I can't feed my baby. She is struggling, and you see the red brick dust in the diaper. And I also, I was formula fed. I have never felt the urge or need to make anybody feel any sort of way about formula feeding. It's just, again, you know, you go in with certain ideas of how you're going to do it, and then everything changes. My sisters had... um been able to nurse their their children and they were very forthright about the challenges. I definitely knew it was not a rosy perfect thing, but it was something that I really wanted to do. And just seeing so many different lactation consultants, I feel like I got different advice from so many of them. But this last nurse who discharged me, who took out my staples, I remember she was like, would it be okay if I sit here while you try to get your daughter to latch? And I was like, absolutely. You know, at by that point, after having a baby, you, I think, lose a lot of the pretense of, like, modesty. You're like, absolutely, sit here. I was using a nursing shield at the time because I was just having some issues and got that on, got my daughter, her name is Annie, got Annie latched on. And the nurse was watching me and she was like, well, do you have any questions? Is there anything in particular that that's bothering you? And I said, well we're not doing it right. Like I've been told repeatedly through the last few days, I'm not doing this right. As a young first-time mother, Elizabeth felt like preparation was key. She and her husband had been top of their parenting class and felt ready to tackle whatever the baby might bring. But parenting isn't a step-by-step practice out of a textbook. It's building a relationship with a human being newly born into this world. I think that's a problem we have with a lot of parenting classes, parenting classes as far as how to bathe a baby and how to maybe diaper a baby if you haven't had those experiences can be fun and and, and base skills. But as a, a colleague and mentor of mine always said, parenting is a relationship. It's not a skill. When framed that way, getting a newborn to latch becomes about fostering a connection between mother and child not a race to master the right technique. That's what made this particular nurse's approach so empowering. She was like, are you having pain? And I was like, no, it feels good. She was like, okay, well, look, you can see like in the shield, you can see there's milk coming through. Like you're doing it. She's doing it. You're doing great. (laughs) That gave me a better mindset, like almost like a palate cleanser of leaving. New mothers hear a lot of advice in the first few days, both solicited and not. But the most important thing they can be given, a greater sense of their own competence as parents. I think that um, too often people jump in to tell someone what to do as a young mother, and they get a lot of different pieces of advice, and we don't honor their own instincts and knowledge of their self. And so really helping parents to see what they're doing right is such a critical role because they're often, you know, very harsh on themselves for what they might not be doing as well as they'd like. One of the things that I would always say to parents, and I worked with teen parents often too, is 
that they are the experts for themselves. They are the experts of their own lives. (laughs) They are the experts of their own experiences. They are the experts of knowing their baby. And therefore, they should listen to themselves and they should feel comfortable to advocate for themselves. This sort of empowerment is all too important once parents finally make it home with their baby, away from the hustle and bustle of medical expertise at the hospital. Coming home, everything was so different from how I thought it would look, and I was not under any kind of, you know, fantasy thinking that I would come home and everything would be super easy and beautiful and I would be, you know, laid up in my bed with my perfectly nursing daughter and people would bring me cooked trays of food. (laughs) I have three older sisters. I, you know, they have children. I know that it's not a leave it to beaver kind of perfect situation for a lot of people. I just wasn't anticipating the challenges that would come out of how I had left that birthing experience. Coming home is, of course, a reflective moment. It's the calm after the storm of birth and before the frenzy of caring for a newborn starts. It's a moment for parents to reconcile their pre-birth expectations with their new reality. Pregnancy allows a time for parents to develop their own kind of vision of what kind of parent they'll be and what kind of baby they'll have. And so the birthing process itself is this point where they are able to look at, is this baby the baby they expected? Is this baby, you know, something different? Um, You know, and so, so many things come into play. But for Elizabeth, it wasn't her expectations about her baby or even parenthood that were shattered but her expectations of herself. That disconnect hit her the moment she stepped into her apartment. You know, we had prepared our home for baby. We were ready. I had purchased bottles and like a pump and stuff. My sister had been at our apartment taking care of our dog and cat. She had brought home like a blanket that Annie had been swaddled in so the animals would be ready. Everything was clean. We were prepared. I walked into what for us was an immaculate apartment. And I remembered preparing it. I remembered cleaning things up. And I imagined myself being up in the middle of the night, maybe with Chris. Maybe we're frustrated with each other. Maybe the baby's crying. I didn't think it was going to be a perfect 50 sitcom of of perfection, anything like that. But I remember walking in to what I had set up for myself and my sister had, you know, helped get ready. And just feeling this dramatic, instead of feeling peace, I just wanted to be not there. I don't think there was anywhere I wanted to be. And I wasn't feeling like suicidal. It's not that I didn't want to exist. I didn't want to be alive. I just, I think I walked in and felt very acutely the walls around me. I felt the ceiling above me. and, And just like laying on that hospital bed, I felt trapped. And I was so excited to be home and to be with Annie and to, like, start our little family life. But I just felt like there was nowhere for me to go. And I just remember feeling very defeated. It felt like a 180 from where I had been less than a week before. 
there was still part of me also that was struggling with not being on my my medication. And as I was working to breastfeed, again, that was a decision that I was making to not be on that. I remember that I was very emotionally volatile. I felt very exposed, you know, changed through everything that's happened. I just felt like a live wire, I think. I, like my father, <laughs> become very irritable when I'm anxious. And I noticed myself behaving in ways that I was not super happy about, being very reactive. I mean, nobody told me how triggering parenthood could be as somebody who grew up in an abusive household who is working to break these certain chains of behavior and norms of appropriate and accepted family dynamics. You know, nobody said, this is going to test you to your very core. It will make you challenge what you think about yourself, what you know to be true about yourself, and the stories that you have mapped out to make yourself feel safe in the world. All of that is going to change. Also, you know, dealing with the changes in my relationship with my husband, who was also adapting to becoming a father and trying to help his wife through something that he did not understand and was not in any way prepared for. <laughs> you know, I was 23 when Annie was born and none of my friends had had children yet. I remember calling my mom when Annie was about two weeks old. I was two weeks postpartum and just crying and being like, I'm thinking about bringing her to the hospital. I know I can do that. And like, they won't ask questions. I'm well versed in this. Like somebody can do a better job of this. And she talked me down from it. I, I very strongly also felt that sense of like isolation. Like nobody in my life knows what I'm going through. I don't know how to vocalize that. I don't know how to put into words how I'm feeling. I'm feeling shame about how I'm feeling and I'm feeling guilt about how I'm feeling. So, you know, on one hand, you know the best way to move forward with that is hopefully to find somebody who can help you process it. But when you just don't have any idea of how to begin, I think, you know, I just, I felt overwhelmed about everything. And when I feel overwhelmed, I just shut down. In their first few months of life, Babies experience incredible periods of growth. Everything is new. They're curious about the world. They're learning and developing. They want to interact and be social, especially with their parents. And so for parents to understand that their connection um, in that child's life is so important and that they can strengthen those connections through their very everyday kind of rituals and routines, you know, from their morning hellos, rocking their babies and singing to them, reading to them, um, talking to them, even though they can't talk for another year or two. That's a big smile. Really having that back and forth relationship with their baby and being there for their baby to provide um, some ability to kind of comfort and soothe when necessary and to introduce them to new things. It's that really deep bond and connection that is so important to the child's well-being across so many different parts of development. Elizabeth has a background in early childhood development. She knew all of this, but she was still struggling. With a little energy she had, 
she put what she knew into practice. I focused on making sure that Annie had what she needed. Because my undergrad degree is in child psychology, I had read a lot about postpartum depression. When I was understanding that I was in really deep and having some mental struggles, I still really made an effort to make sure that I was reflecting a very positive and supportive figure that she could attach to. So I was very careful whenever she was awake, you know, to be very present, to make sure I was demonstrating and displaying positive faces and interacting with her. When she was awake, whether it was me almost play acting, like faking it till you make it, or just my genuine happiness to have her in my life, because again, I even though I wanted to bring her to the hospital <laughs> at two weeks, like uh, she was a very easy, lovely baby, and I loved her very much. She actually made really conscious decisions to make herself emotionally available for her child because she knew how much she was struggling. And, and it sounds like it was so incredibly taxing for her to do that, but she took great pains because she recognized how important it was for her to be socially and emotionally available to her child who needed her and what that impact would be on her baby if she were not available in that way. So really right from the start, babies are wired, their brains and nervous system are wired to form relationships baby's gaze. You know, nobody looks at another person like we look at babies. You know, if you did, it would feel really funny to stare at them in that way. But baby's gaze is so critical to kind of that, that connection. A baby's gaze is all about connection. In the first year of life, they're observing everything around them. They're putting things together. Staring shows that their brain is working hard to learn, grow, and develop cognitive skills. But it's not just the gaze. Their other senses are active, too. The babbling back and forth really is something that, that keeps those babies connected, especially with their key attachments. They did studies years ago where, um, you know, they soaked um, nursing pads with mother's milk and with formula. And the babies showed a preference for mother's milk. Now, it wasn't like the Pepsi challenge where they, you know, put their thumbs up, I like this one better. You would see that as they held those two pads near them, that their heart rate and breathing slowed, that they tended to kind of gaze in the direction. Babies are social creatures. They come into the world with this sort of innate drive to relate to and connect with people in their world, and particularly their caregivers. Babies want to form attachments with the people, those key people in their lives, um, you know, especially their, their mothers, their fathers, their caregivers, those important adults to them. And these connections, these attachments, they're not fleeting. They form the foundation of the baby's perception of the new world they're in. You know, we used to talk about babies using the term tabula rasa, which means blank slate. That's what people thought babies were, that they came into the world with nothing. <laughs> Knowing nothing, experiencing nothing, having nothing to give back. And we now know that that is not at all true. Over um, the past 50, 60 years, we've learned so much more about how babies and very young children experience the world and their own 
abilities to have full emotional lives and the impact and the importance of the caregiver, that caregiving unit around them and the impact on them when that caregiving unit is struggling with their own mental health issues. Motherhood comes with unspoken sacrifices. Many new mothers are taught to put themselves and their needs aside to do what's best for baby. But what happens when what's best for the child is detrimental for the mother? When she was awake, everything kind of felt okay. It was when she slept and bless her, she was a lovely sleeper and was sleeping through the night by like six weeks that I felt like everything in my life just fell apart. Like it was just clockwork because it was just so, so overwhelming. And then in combination with me stopping to try breastfeeding, I I was not very successful as a, as a producer. I'd had radiation as a teenager and that affected my ability to produce. I think at my max, I was doing like an ounce and a half a day (laughs) from both of, both of my breasts. Like it was just not, you know, at one point my doctor was like, listen, I know this is very important to you and I would not tell you to stop, but can we think about, you know, maybe weighing the benefits versus like your mental health with this. Um, And so when I finally accepted the fact that I could still be, you know, as loving and giving as a mother as I wanted to be, even if I could not breastfeed. Um, And I started taking my antidepressants again, you know, things started swinging up. Around the time she was probably like nine months, I felt, I felt myself rising from the ashes of saying, oh, this has been really bad. Am I going to do what I've always done in the past? Or am I going to take this opportunity to move forward and do something different and to hopefully make it a little better? Right? I had this mindset of like, okay, this is terrible and it shouldn't have happened and it feels bad, but what are we going to do about it now? We just need to move forward. Seeing her develop through that and, and coming into her own as like her own little person instead of a little newborn potato baby really felt like these are the stakes this is not just me anymore. It was almost like a lifeline for me of like, she's not wrecked my experience, our experience together as the mother-child dyad, like was not destroyed by this, even though I felt like it was. Elizabeth was able to fake it till she made it to a turning point. She fostered Annie's desire for connection and engaged with her in all the meaningful ways she knew. Elizabeth's hard work and sacrifice laid the groundwork for Annie's development not just as a baby, but into childhood as well. We might not be able to remember those early attachments from our first weeks of life, but they're more important than you might think. There's often a myth that, oh, if something bad happened, they were just babies. It doesn't matter. They won't remember. Well, the body remembers. Um, Young children remember, not always in the same kind of um, way that we do with like thoughts and and speech that tells us about it, but they remember often through their senses. And with the brain just kind of coming online and developing, some of those stresses can be really kind of serious injuries to, to the brain growth. And so we want to pay attention to what the babies and young children are experiencing and so that we are able to really correct some of the path that they might be taking as they get older. Recognizing those stress points is critical, not only for brain growth and development in a child, but for mothers with their own trauma as well. 
you know, I, I, I'm remembering now thinking back, like a thread that runs through the struggles that I had in, in the early postpartum period. And honestly, through most of the first year of my daughter's life to laying on that hospital bed to, you know, <laughs> having, having flashbacks to the sexual assaults I've gone through, like this feeling of like, well, you got yourself in this situation. So you're just going to take it. You're going to deal with it and you're going to, you know, buckle down and get through it and then move on from there. It's one thing to tell yourself to just shove something down and not deal with it. But recognizing that with trauma, the way my parents parented me is a result of their trauma and their experiences and things like that, that I had a real responsibility as as a mother, as a person, not just to my daughter, but to myself, to use this opportunity to transform to be kinder, gentler, a better advocate for who I was and who I wanted to be as a person. The brain is resilient and constantly adjusting to new environments. Scientists call this neuroplasticity. It's the brain's ability to change and adapt. This process is at its peak for babies. A child's brain undergoes an amazing period of development from birth to three, producing more than a million neural connections each second. Experiences they have in that time can alter how that growth looks. Brain growth during pregnancy and the early years is at a, the most phenomenal rate that, that you'll ever see in the lifespan. And, you know, as we talked about, you know, early relationships and those early experiences within relationships really shape the architecture of the brain and, you know, form, help to contribute to the child's experience of the world around them and experience of people around them. And so I think that, you know, understanding that infant and early childhood mental health has strong physical component when it comes to brain development um, and that this interaction in terms of relationships with babies really does impact brain development um, for the child. And so it impacts the child's growth and development in general. I feel like at that space, that in the early part of the relationship is where if you can kind of help support that family, the parent and child, you could really sort of make an impact on that child's trajectory. And so infant and early childhood mental health is really about that, that developing capacity of, of young children to have close relationships and secure relationships. It's the ability to experience a full range of emotions in their lives. It's not just about being happy all the time. It's, it's also their ability to kind of have some struggles, you know, feel angry, feel frustrated, feel sad, and be comforted and to come back and, you know, to a place of calm and, and being settled. Infant and early childhood mental health is also about the ability of the young child to explore their environment, um, to toddle around, to be curious, and to learn. Next week on The Earliest, we're zooming out a bit and looking at the field of IECMH. 
we'll learn more about Elizabeth's work as a doula and birth worker in tribal spaces and what it means to prioritize neonatal care in the context of community. So really, I think marrying that into what I've talked about before, you know, my love for home visiting, for the idea of supporting families um, as a means of building their own capacity and improving outcomes for their children. I mean, you combine that with the idea of of communities having the power to move forward with changes and initiatives that work for them. You know, I think that was just a wonderful opportunity that I would not have foreseen, and I feel so grateful to have been in that place when I was. That's next time on The Earliest. Find out more about Zero to Three at our website, zero2three.org. While there, check out our upcoming trainings and conferences. And if you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Earliest on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. I want to give you a quick update. Babies from all 50 states and D.C. are crying out for change. On May 17th, families from across the nation joined us for Strolling Thunder 2022 and met with members of Congress to tell their story and urge them to hashtag ThinkBabies. Add your voice in support of babies and toddlers by calling on Congress to act now in support of their healthy development. Visit ThinkBabies.org to take action. Thanks for listening to The Earliest. I'm Ernestine Benedict. The Earliest is produced by Zero to Three in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Stephanie Chow, Madeline Daniels-Benderev, and Ricky Webster from Zero to Three. And the team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Hannah Patterson, Rebecca Shawson, Shanice Tindall, and Carter Wogan.